And the phone rang. And it was a digitized message asking me if I would accept a call from my son. And after I accepted that call, he was sobbing. He said, Mom, I've just been jumped by 10 inmates. They were kicking me and kicking me in the head. He said, my two front teeth have been broken off. I have a cut in my ear. He, he said, I'm really busted up. He said, they stole all my stuff except for my Bible. And then he choked back tears and he said, but Mom, after the beating, the corrections officers took me to the faith-based area of the jail. And he said, Mom, those men were just like Jesus to me. He said, they brought me soap and they cleaned my wounds and they brought me a clean t-shirt. They prayed over me, Mom. He said they were just like Jesus. My name is Colleen Swindoll Thompson, the Director of Reframing Ministries at Insight for Living. And today we are going to have an extraordinary story told, applicable to all of us through Carol Kent, my guest. Carol, welcome to the interview with Reframing Ministries. Thank you so much, Colleen. It's a joy to be on the air with you. Well, you've made quite a name for yourself, Carol, by starting Speak Up conferences, Speak Up for Hope, which serves families with inmates and their loved ones, um, Speak Up speaker services, and you've had regular appearances on a lot of different shows, including Life Today with James Robinson, Family Life Today, and MSNBC and NBC, CBS. I'm sure some of those you would have preferred not, <laughs> which That's we'll hear right. about. Yes. But you and Jean have been married for quite some time, and you've written over 20 books. That makes me sound very old. No, you don't look old, though. <laughs> You're just an old soul. That's what That's we call it. <laughs> sure. Well, if you keep writing long enough, it adds up after a while. There you go. Today, we're going to be focusing more on this incredible book that I want our audiences to get and read when I lay my Isaac down, Unshakable Faith in Unthinkable Circumstances. Here it is. It is so, so good. And Carol, this came out of personal experience. So why don't you lead in with how that started? Well, Colleen, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home as the oldest of six preacher's kids. Mm -hmm. And after I graduated from college, I met a man I had married in high... After I graduated from college, I married a man I had dated since high school, Jane Kent. And five years later, I gave birth to Jason Paul Kent. And he was a little boy who was a delight to raise. He had a sparkle in his eye, and he was full of adventure. Uh, during uh, the summer between his sophomore and junior years of high school, he went off to Manitou Springs, Colorado, to Summit Ministries. Mm -hmm. And there, he really learned the importance of establishing a Christian worldview. And he learned how to articulate that. Mm -hmm. And he came home with renewed spiritual uh, just excitement. And he said, Mom and Dad, I really believe that God wants me to serve in military and maybe even in political leadership. And I believe the best place I could get equipped to do that would be at the United States Naval Academy. Well, Colleen, he made application to all three of the academies, received an early invitation to become a cadet at West Point, but he wanted to hold out for Annapolis, and he finally received the appointment, and we were there in May of 1997, when on national television, all of those midshipmen tossed those hats in the air, and we celebrated our young son's accomplishments. From there, he went to Orlando, Florida, and he was in nuclear engineering school. He joined a great church and joined a Bible study with about 300 young adults involved. And there were women in that Bible study, and Jason got very interested <laughs> in a young woman named April. And by the end of that summer, he had fallen in love. Now, I will never forget calling home for messages when we were away on a speaking trip. And on voicemail, I heard my son say, 
mom and dad, some things are coming down. We have to talk. <laughs> well, it's at a moment like that you wish your child would add two or three more sentences about what is coming <laughs> down. We got a hold of him. He said, my orders have changed. I have to be at Surface Warfare Officer School in Newport, Rhode Island on September 8th. April and I are in love, and we want to get married next Friday so we can go together. Now, Colleen, as a mom, how would you feel about a statement like that? I would be terrified. <laughs> but it I'm makes for an terrible. inexpensive wedding. Uh, oh, well, that's very true. <laughs> we, we asked them if they would be willing to wait three weeks and to be married in our hometown mm. with the accountability of family and friends around them, and they agreed. And a week and a half later, April came into our lives. And behind April came six-year-old Chelsea and three-year-old Hannah. Hannah was such a little cutie pie. She would sit at my kitchen counter every morning and sing songs in between bites of cereal, saying how much she loved Jesus. Then little Chelsea had been in the house for a half hour, and she came up, grabbed my hand in her two hands. She kissed all over it, and she said, you're my new favorite Grammy. <laughs> well, I was not feeling so badly at that point about my son marrying a previously married woman who had two beautiful little girls. We fell in love with all three of them so quickly. And we realized after getting to know April a little better that she had been through uh, a lot of abuse. And there were multiple allegations of abuse involving her husband, and then involving the little girls, their biological father. And we had a beautiful wedding on a picture-perfect day. And if you could see the picture of Jason in his navy whites and April in her dress that came from a resale shop, wow. you would say that this looks like a story that will end, and they lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Well, the year began, and uh, they were having really a good year. But as Jason called home, we noticed after a few months, instead of talking, instead of talking about global events or what he was doing with the Navy, he was becoming very upset and distraught over the girl's biological father. He had been given only supervised visitation mm -hmm. due to the allegations of abuse, and he'd been behaving very well, and it appeared that a judge was about to give unsupervised visitation. Well, Jason's first out-of-the-continental military assignment was going to be in Hawaii. And if this man had unsupervised visitation, due to how far away they would be, it would mean six-week visits with their biological father in the summertime. And in retrospect, we began to see our son unravel mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. It was now a year after their marriage. And we were into the, the month of October. I had a speaking trip to St. Louis, and Jean and I got home on a Sunday night exhausted. Mm -hmm. And we were sound asleep when the phone rang in the middle of the night. And I remember watching my husband pick up the receiver. And uh, I looked at the clock. It said 12.35 a.m. And then I saw a look of shock and horror come over my husband's face. And he said, Carol. Jason has just been arrested for the murder of his wife's first husband. He's in the jail in Orlando. Well, I had never been in shock before. Nausea swept over me. I, I tried to get out of bed, but my legs would not hold my weight. Mm -hmm. I literally crawled my way into my office and still on the floor, I grabbed the telephone and I got a number for the Orlando jail. And after a long time of ringing, someone answered the phone, and I asked about my boy. And a, a rude voice on the other end of the line said, Lady, we ain't got nobody by that name. Jason can in here. Lady, your son ain't here. <laughs> and for just that split second, my hopes came back. I thought, I must be living in the middle of a horrific dream. I will soon wake up, and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. But everything was far from okay. He had just not been processed into the computer system at the jail yet. And uh, Jean and I, throughout that night, intermittently sobbed. We held each other. We began making a list. 
Uh, to say that we were in shock is such an understatement. Uh, this is a young man who had been president of the National Honor Society in high school. He had never been in trouble. We didn't need to set a curfew. He came home on time and he was a good student. And we were stunned that this could have happened. And uh, I just remember for the next few days, I would say, breathe, do the next thing. Breathe, do the next thing. Well, Jean said, you know, Carol, I'm going to start reading the Bible over again, beginning in Genesis. We must have missed something. And I remember him rushing into the kitchen. And, and he said, Carol, he said, I'm in Genesis 28. And he said, it's that passage where Jacob is in a dream and there is a ladder that stretches from earth all the way to heaven. And uh, there are angels going up and down on that ladder. And suddenly Jacob awakens more alert than he's ever been before because he realizes there is so much more going on in the visible and in the invisible world than he's ever been aware of before. And then Jean read Genesis 28, 16 to me. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. And we began to understand that when God seems the most absent, he is indeed the most present. I, I was in that spot of uh, knowing that nobody in our hometown, except for the two people who worked with us uh, in our ministry, knew what had gone on. It hadn't hit the papers yet. And, and so it was that, that sense of very soon the whole world is going to know and everything will come crashing in. Uh, we had relatives to notify. Jason had lots of aunts and uncles and cousins who respected him dearly. And it took about an hour on the phone with each of those people for them to even comprehend what happened because it was so unthinkable that Jason could have pulled that trigger. And uh, I, I remember a day after all of this happened, I had a long-awaited appointment for an annual physical, and I needed to get a prescription filled. And I thought, you know, uh, nobody knows what's happened. I, I'm going to go, and uh, it'll be okay. I'll have this appointment. And I walked into the doctor's office, and I had that surreal experience of feeling like I was on the edge of the real world, mm -hmm. observing what was going on, but not really being in that world. And Colleen, I looked over and I saw a young mom, I saw a young mom bouncing her two-year-old on her lap. And I thought, my child used to be as innocent as that child. And I saw another woman watching a soap opera on the television in the waiting area. And I thought, she acts like everything is normal. My whole world just fell apart and, and they act like everything is fine. And uh, then I had a panic attack. I looked at the door. I thought, if anyone I know walks in, I will fall apart. I should not be here. And just as I was ready to race for the door, the nurse called my name, and I blindly followed her back to the examination room where she handed me the gown we all wear once a year. And I'm here to testify, <laughs> sister, that when you are under stress, it is hard to figure out where the slit goes and where the hole goes. Stress <laughs> just ruins our brains. You're totally, exactly right. Totally. Well, I finally figured it out. She came back in and she took my blood pressure. She said, my, we're a little high today. I thought, lady, if you only knew why. And then I burst into totally uncontrolled tears. And this sweet nurse patted my arm and she said, oh, honey, the exam won't be that painful. And I heard myself laugh out loud and it <laughs> shocked me because I did not know if I would ever be able to laugh out loud again. Yes. And it was a reminder that I was alive and I was human. And I know a lot of people listening to us or viewing us right now might feel like they are in horrible circumstances and they feel guilty laughing or smiling or having some kind of a release. And I just want to say to them, it's okay. God designed you with this beautiful ability to laugh and it allows tension to be released and it aids in your healing process. 
Well, I got home and uh, we, we were needing to figure out who do we get for an attorney. And this was a criminal defense of gigantic magnitude. And Jean left for Florida very early on. And I was at home pulling the rest of the finances together, which felt like buying another house. Right. And the phone rang. And it was a digitized message asking me if I would accept a call from my son. And after I accepted that call, he was sobbing. He said, Mom, I've just been jumped by 10 inmates. They were kicking me and kicking me in the head. He said, my two front teeth have been broken off. I have a cut in my ear. He, he said, I'm really busted up. He said, they stole all my stuff except for my Bible. And then he choked back tears and he said, but Mom, after the beating, the corrections officers took me to the faith-based area of the jail. And he said, Mom, those men were just like Jesus to me. He said, they brought me soap and they cleaned my wounds and they brought me a clean T-shirt. They prayed over me, Mom. He said, they were just like Jesus. And Colleen then came, a, a very definite ending of that 15-minute call because you're cut off completely after 15 minutes. And I remember hearing this guttural wail come out of the depths of my being. And I raised my hands palm side up to the Lord and I said, God, I cannot do this journey. I cannot watch my son suffer like this. Please take me home to be with you. I cannot do this. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember suddenly uh, it occurred to me that the mama instinct was there and our son needed his parents more than he had ever needed us before in his entire life. And I got on that plane the next day and I flew to Florida. Well, Gene had already had his allowable 15 minute visit with our son. So he was not allowed to come with me. And I remember waiting a long time. I had always seen my son in uh, naval uniforms with medals. He was in jailhouse blues. He had on handcuffs attached to a waist chain. I heard a shuffle and it was because he had on ankle cuffs with a chain between his legs. And as he rounded the bend where I would be looking at him through plexiglass with an armed officer behind him listening to everything that, that we said, I saw his face covered with scabs from that beating. And uh, I saw the, the big gash in his ear and both of his eyes were fully bloodshot. And then I saw those two broken off front teeth. And for several moments, the two of us just wept, looking at each other, knowing that there could be no do-overs. This had happened and that life was forever changed. And we realized that for another family, life was forever changed. While we were planning a trial for first degree murder, there was a father, there was a stepmother, there was a sister, and, and they were planning a funeral. Mm -hmm. And I know when stories like this are told that we have families who have been on both sides of violent crime. And sometimes we forget that the ripple impact is, is for the victim's family for sure, mm -hmm. but there is also a ripple impact there's also this ripple impact for the family of the perpetrator of the crime. And there are so many people who are suffering in the middle of that journey. And there isn't a day that goes by that we don't pray for the family of the deceased. They lost so much. And we, we never fail to, to understand how horrific that news must have been for them. Well, we got back home finally, and we were not knowing what to do. Jason was in jail in Florida. His little family was there. Gene had helped them move from Panama City, where Jason had been in the most intense dive school the Navy offers on mixed gases at low ocean depths. And we wondered if that had done anything to his thinking. So the girls were now moved to, to the Orlando area where Jason was incarcerated in the jail. And uh, we, we just had to figure out how would we come up with the money to pay for all of this. And one year earlier, my husband had left his job as a life insurance agent. He had been very successful in that career, but ministry had been multiplying for me as a speaker and as a writer. And uh, Gene came home one day. He said, honey, I've been doing the Experiencing God Bible study, and the whole point of this study is look around and see where God is at work and join him. I see God at work in what you're doing, and I think it's time for me to get on board. 
So Gene had left his fancy office building downtown and had moved into a desk in our basement to run ministry operations. And so, Colleen, there we were with no income but speaking and writing. And my son had just committed murder. Five days earlier, my book called Becoming a Woman of Influence had been released on how to mentor like Jesus did, how to pass on truth to the next generation. And here I was, the author of a book with that title, and I was now the mother of a murderer. And I had to do all of the interviews connected with that book. But I want to say right here, because I thought about this, um, because I've kind of been stalking you this last week in my studying all of that you've written and done. <laughs> you can have coffee with me. Stop <laughs> I, I could. But what I thought about was um, that's a perfect title because Christ chose someone to write most of the New Testament who had committed murder many times over, named Saul, who turned to Paul. And yes. we, we, we glean so much from him that being a woman of influence doesn't mean bad things in this world are not going to happen. They will happen, and God will prove himself through the circumstances. You just preached a whole sermon. That is so true. And what we discovered is that we thought, we, we just thought, well, how can we even go on? Yeah. And I wish I could tell you that at that point, I continued to speak because I was such a solid believer and because I was just so firm in my faith. No, the truth is we needed the money desperately. Mm -hmm. And I remember traveling to that first speaking engagement and not knowing if I could even make it through a talk. And I sat with the worship leader at a meal before the, the event began. And she leaned over. She said, Carol, uh, I have to tell you, I almost canceled. My husband and I have been in full-time music ministry, and we're not making it financially. And this week, we're losing our house. We're going bankrupt. And I can hardly look at my children and tell them God is faithful. Mm -hmm. We just feel like it, we're such failures. And I couldn't even verbalize that my son had just committed a murder. All I could do is grab her by the hand and say, my husband and I are in the middle of a gigantic family crisis. And I just remember putting my hand over hers and saying, we will be two broken people ministering out of the depths of our brokenness. Well, she led worship and I sobbed through every song because every song was so meaningful to me. And I got up with my Bible in my hand and Colleen, I began to speak truth from God's word like I always had. And I felt an empowerment mm -hmm. I can only explain in the supernatural dimension. It was as if I was stomping on the enemy saying, you loser, you meant to wipe the parents out with the son and you lose, he wins. And from that point on, I began to understand how out of our most deep, weak places, God can infuse us with a spiritual strength that is more powerful than anything we have ever known before. And out of our depth of brokenness, he allows us to give hope to people in new ways and in more powerful ways. And I remember a woman who had been in my Bible study fellowship class who had heard about what happened. And she came to me one day and she said, Carol, I, I used to think you were perfect, but now I think we could be friends. Oh. And I, I just started to realize that when we are honest about our brokenness and our our journeys that have been less than perfect and about the sorrow, perhaps in a marriage or through a health crisis or a financial struggle or through a devastation in the middle of our ministry or through a child being arrested. And when we tell the truth about that to other people, it opens them up in a way that they start sharing their stories with us. And that was the beginning of realizing that God would not waste this great sorrow, but that he would multiply the blessing of it because I could help so many other people in the middle of feeling like my own life was shattered because they would believe me then. If, if I could tell them that God is faithful, even in this, and they could see that, they would see that he truly could be faithful for them too. 
Well, that's that's amazing because you went through three years of postponement for the trial. You went it through was, so many. It was what? It was two and a half years and seven postponements. I mean, to prove that God is faithful means you're going to get raked over the coals. <laughs> I mean, we don't think that way often. Yes, yes. But yet when we can't see him at all. He's doing some of his greatest work. And I say that from experience and not from experience I want to ever endure again. But, mm. but because he has been faithful, when we experience the bottom, you have hope to pass on. And when it comes in honesty and we're authentic and real, people get that and they begin to trust us. Well, we were contacted by friends, Colleen, and I, I remember there was Kathy in Phoenix, Becky in Texas, and another Kathy in Indiana. These three women didn't even know each other, but they all knew us quite well. And within two weeks, all three had contacted us and they said, we want to do something to help your family. And they connected with each other uh, being via the internet and phone and they put together what they called our stretcher bearers and those people were those folks who said yes please send us a monthly email update so we know how to hold Jean and Carol and Jason up in prayer and little did they know they were signing up for two and a half years of being so supportive but it was such a precious thing because people like to help when they know what the need is. And I remember shortly after Jason's arrest, one day the doorbell rang and it was the florist. And I opened the door. He said, hello, lady. Are you Carol Kent? I said, yes, I am. He said, lady, it's your lucky day. You're like, well, no, I'm not. I, she's out for the day. <laughs> I said, I, you know, I really don't need a lucky day. Uh, I, you know, some days you just want to be miserable. Mm -hmm. But uh, all I could do was respond. And he handed me one dozen long stemmed yellow roses, the most beautiful I'd ever seen. And I wondered who had graced my day with this gift. And I opened the note and it was from two of my sisters. And it said, Dear Carol, you once gave us some decorating advice. You told us that yellow flowers will brighten any room. We thought you needed a little yellow in your life love, Bonnie, and joy. And I wept like a baby. I had never been so needy, but I had never felt so loved. And uh, people began sending gifts in yellow packages when they heard this story and cards in yellow envelopes. And they found out April's favorite color was purple and she got purple paperware, purple Kleenex and purple wow. candles. And uh, people were so loving. And there were financial gifts that helped us with these extraordinary legal expenses. And we were loved with such a graciousness. And I just love this story because sometimes we are in a place when we can give to others. And I had always been in the position where I was the one who reached out to other people and it was harder to be needy. I didn't like being needy. No, needy. I don't like it either. And I, I wanted to be the one on the other end of that. Mm -hmm. But I just want to say that there are times when God allows us the, the wonderful extravagance of being loved by his people. And our stretcher bearers did that for us. They were the hands and feet of Jesus to us. And then I began to notice something else, even before Jason's trial, that on my worst days, if I would look around and find one person who needed help worse than I do, than I did at that time, if I would do one tangible act of kindness for them, it lifted my own spirit. It lifted my heart. There was interaction between me and someone else. And I just began to realize this is part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. He wants us to help each other. And in the process of helping each other, our own spiritual heart is nurtured. Mm -hmm. And we begin to feel just that little glimmer of hope again. Because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He reached yes, down is. to lift us from the cross, the worst place. And yet you're right. It's it's not just saying what I'm thankful for. It's saying 
this is what I'm thankful for doing today for somebody else because it has encouraged them in a in a possibly transformative way. Yes. Oh, that was true again and again. Hmm. Well, finally, it was getting close to time for the trial. And these precious friends of mine who at one time had lived in the same city where I had lived contacted me, Karen and Betty Jo, and they said, Carol, we want to give you a girlfriend's getaway before the week of the trial. Mm. And we met at Karen's Lake Home, and they said, you unpack, we're getting dinner ready. And I suddenly realized they were making me their special guests. And we had a great night of catching up on each other's lives. The next morning, we stayed in our robes until noon and drank coffee on the deck. And that afternoon, they got out old-fashioned hymn books, and they, a choir of two, sang to me, an audience of one, the great hymns of the faith that I had grown up on. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Colleen, for one hour, these women sang to me a concert of hymns based on biblical truth that would hold me up during that week. And I have to tell you, they are not trained musicians. (laughs) (laughs) But it still still nurtured your heart. (laughs) It was so precious. And then they had pre-selected scriptures to read to me before the week of the trial. Well, we got to Orlando on the night before the trial was to begin on Monday morning. And we met April down at the courthouse, and it's a huge courthouse complex. And we went up to the front door and laid hands on the front door to pray for the trial and to pray for all of the people involved, the prosecutor, the other attorneys, the jury, the judge, uh, the people who were on the, that were involved in every piece of putting the whole thing together. And you should have seen the security guards come running. We had done a Jericho-style prayer walk around the courthouse, but they soon found out we were not terrorists. We were people who were praying for a trial that was going to happen. (laughs) And we did those Jericho-style prayer walks for every single day of that trial. And uh, it it was something that we needed just to to be in touch with the Lord and to ask Him for a miracle of mercy. And it was a not guilty by reason of temporary insanity plea, which is not very popular. Keep in mind, after two and a half years, Jason was no longer uh, upset uh, by the time the psychiatric exams were done. He looked like a very normal young man. And so it it was a very, very difficult uh, plea. And uh, we were told that April, Jean, and I were not allowed to be inside the courtroom for the first three days because we were witnesses to our son's mental state prior to the murder. And uh, I remember watching the TV cameras be set up. There was nothing we could do to keep the media out of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, on Thursday, it was going to be our turn. And... I remember Jean was first, April was second, I was last. I remember walking in, I looked over at the the jury and I thought, are they fair people? I I looked over at, at the judge, I thought, is he a father? Does he see my son's true heart? I looked at the prosecutor. She had had 20 years of experience at at uh, putting people in the death chamber and, and uh, behind bars for a lifetime. She was articulate, educated. She was a gifted communicator. I looked over at Jason, and he turned and looked at me, and we just mouthed, I love you. Mm-hmm. I remember second-guessing everything I said under oath, wondering if I had in any way hurt my son's possibility of ever walking in freedom again. We knew that he had pulled the trigger. It wasn't a matter of who shot this man, but it was a matter of what the motives were and what had happened right before and during. And uh, I, I remember leaving that night with such anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, we came back, and that Friday morning, we went through closing arguments and by noon the jury was deliberating and we did seven Jericho style prayer walks around the courthouse during jury deliberation. (laughs) Just to be sure. (laughs) To be sure. And at 5.30 p.m. we were called back in. The jury had reached a verdict. 
Jason was asked to stand and I could see the court TV camera scrambling to set up and the, the verdict was read. We, the members of the jury, find Jason Paul Kent guilty of murder in the first degree. And the gavel came down. Well, Florida is a state of mandatory minimum sentences, and so we instantly knew what the, the sentence would be because the death penalty had been removed earlier. Mm -hmm. It was Jason's first and only offense of his life. The prosecutor knew it would be very hard to get the death penalty, and that was taken off the table. And uh, Jason was asked to stand again, and the judge said, I sentence you, Jason Paul Kent, to live out the rest of your natural life in a Florida state penitentiary without the possibility of parole. And the gavel once again came down. And we watched our son be put back in handcuffs and a waist chain. I don't think I have ever experienced the kind of sorrow I felt that night. The TV cameras were zooming in on the grieving mama, trying to put microphones in front of our faces, and we couldn't even speak. And I saw Jason be ushered toward the exit, and he looked back one more time. And I, I just mouthed, I love you, son. And uh, we got back to April's house, and basically, when you're in too much pain, mm -hmm. all you can do is hold each other mm -hmm. and weep. You can't even speak. Um, you can't. Carol, I've been in your shoes, not, not the same, but I have had, um, I've been part of a criminal trial and had to testify and, and having second guessed everything, everything, everything that was said, um, for my son. And then come to find out, you get a piece of paper that says, you know, for you, it was a guilty sentence. For my son, it was a different issue when he was little. Yes. And you, there aren't any words, I don't think, because we're, we're taught to believe the court system will make all this right or the jury will make this right. Nothing in scripture says that we will have justice on this earth. No. No, it doesn't. And sometimes we think we're owed that. Of course. And we forget that suffering was part of the process for Jesus, and it will be part of the process for those of us who know and love him because we live in a fallen world. Well, two hours went by and the phone rang, and it was Jason. He had been taken back to the jail. And uh, he said, Mom and Dad, I, I was taken back to the the jail and the news of my conviction and sentence had already gotten there. And he said, uh, they brought me back to the faith-based area of the jail. And keep in mind, Jason was now the cell coordinator in that part of the jail. He'd been there so long yeah. and many maximum security inmates had come to faith in Christ. And he said, these big old maximum security inmates were weeping. And they said, Jason, if a man like you got a sentence like that, man, there is no hope for us. There's no hope. And he said, God gave me the ability to stand up and preach. And he said, I said, man, if we walk in freedom in this lifetime or in the next, we will still one day walk in freedom if we know Jesus. And Colleen, it was at that moment that I knew my son was going to be okay. I knew he would, would make it. And two hours later, they took him to a, a capital life area. And eventually he was taken to the Central Florida Reception Center. Sounds like a resort. It's not. It's, it, you have to find the humor or you break in two. I know. I get it totally. <laughs> it, it's where they test you to see where you fit in the penal system in Florida. And less than half of 1% of all Florida inmates have university degrees. So you can imagine they don't exactly have a placement program for U.S. Naval Academy graduates. They probably don't. And one in 100 Americans have been incarcerated, which is another statistic that was very surprising to me. It's shocking, and it's it's a secret nobody talks about when their relatives are incarcerated. We always think we'll be judged, and well, I just want to give people permission to say out loud what you're going through, and let's help each other. Oh, Jason, exactly. I want to interrupt you on that because I came across something today that I thought, I've got to bring this into our talk, and it's on shame and on stigma. And the person said there are three parts to stigma. Feelings, beliefs, and behaviors. When we look at someone 
and we place our feelings on them or behave in a different way towards them or say things or think things that may not be them at all, we run and they run. And the shame that covers certain sins, who was ever defining that besides God, I think he's the only one who is able to, they're all the same. So we need to talk about all the struggles. They're all the same. Well, I think that is an important life lesson that we need to tell people again and again. And I think once people understand that there might be one or two people who raise an eyebrow or who decide that you will no longer be in their friend circle, and that's okay. Right. And what you will discover is that the majority of people will come to you, put an arm around you, listen to you, and encourage you. And then in turn, they'll share what they're going through. And arm in arm, you will find that you have more support than you've ever known before when you take the risk to be the real deal. Yeah, And I, I just cannot preach that little message enough because I think it is so vital that we say out loud what we're going through and that we don't hide it anymore. Hiding is a scary place to be because you never know who, who knows your secret. And you, and you keep trying to cover it up with things yes, that, yes. that don't work and everybody else can see that you're uncomfortable. Just say it, speak it, be it. Mm. It's, it's yeah. okay. I wanted to ask you, because I heard you say, I like myself now more than before. Yes. But that involved a lot of loss because you wrote, looking back on the beginning of our crisis, I'm now able to see how much power is released when we're in the middle of totally unexpected circumstances that cannot be reversed. As days became weeks, weeks became months, Jean and I began to uncover hidden treasures in our unthinkable circumstances. And you listed six of them. The world is a mess. We need to ask for help. Everything is trivial. And that's it. It's trivial. Control is an illusion. That's the hard one. (laughs) We are humbled through humiliation. Affirm or reject our faith. I mean, those things are transforming. If we can just personalize that, it is so important. And I I talk a lot with people about how important it is to relinquish what we love most. That might be a person, it might have to do with a situation, or it might be a job or a ministry position. Relinquish what you love most uh, and let God deal with it. In my case, as I unpried my own fingers and just said, God, take my son. I I cannot control the situation anymore. There was such a freedom that came with this. And then we started to realize that God was putting on our hearts now that our son had this life without parole sentence and he was only 25 years old, that we would be spending the rest of our natural lives going to prison visitation. We would be standing in line with other spouses or uh, with, with children who were visiting their incarcerated loved one. And we started to see this whole world of needs that we had never been aware of before. Colleen, I am not proud to tell you that when my son was arrested, I didn't think I even knew another person who had an incarcerated loved one. But again, it's because it's the secret nobody tells. And then we started to see uh, these, these wives and moms who were penniless. They were functioning as single parents because a spouse was incarcerated. And these young children were there going to, to visit their daddies. And we, we said, what can we do to help these people? Then we had Jason on the inside who knew the needs of the inmates. And we realized that many of these inmates no longer have supportive families who put any money in their inmate accounts for the basics of personal hygiene items, uh, for postage stamps, or for an occasional candy bar. Nobody cares anymore. And we discovered that the average number of years a lifer like our son even gets visits is five years before nobody comes anymore and nobody cares. 
So we prayerfully launched the nonprofit organization Speak Up for Hope. And we began telling people what the needs are. And there were churches that said, what can we do? And sometimes they would make the visitation areas their project and they would collect games and, and coloring books and crayons. And there, there might be puzzle books that couples could do together at a table. And they, they would send them to us and we would distribute them to prisons or they would do that for a prison in their own area, their own state. That's fabulous. And isn't it incredible? Mm -hmm. and, and then as people heard about these inmates who have no support, they began giving to Speak Up for Hope for the Inmate Care Package Project. And so twice a year with Jason as our man on the inside designating mm -hmm. which inmates need help, uh, with the help of Gene, making these orders on the internet through the approved vendor supplier for the Department of Corrections, we are able to send up to $100 worth of care package to inmates. And some of those things might include a pair of tennis shoes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it might be clean new t-shirts. Uh, it, it might be a food item they haven't had since they were on the outside. And you cannot believe the notes we get from these inmates who've said, I've never in my whole time of incarceration had anybody care like this. And we don't make the requirement be that they have to be a believer. We believe one of the most important things we can do is give to somebody who needs Jesus. Well, and yes. I mean, you, Carol, you're on the mission field. It's yeah. just a little bit different than another country, although exactly. it is a different country. You're... You are on the mission field, and Jason is is a missionary. It's it's so exciting. Uh, we've been able to supply Jason with the workbooks to take between six and seven hundred inmates through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University course, and then just three years ago, the very first accredited. Bible Theological Seminary began at the prison where Jason is, oh and 52 men, inmate men, are enrolled in that program learning how to be inmate pastors, and they in turn will be sent to prisons all over Florida. We have over 103,000 inmates in this state. The Department of Corrections is the third highest employer in the state, but this is for the purpose of starting inmate-led churches on these <laughs> in these prisons, and we just are expecting a revival to happen. So Speak Up for Hope has been able to supply some of the reference books and to help these men who need a little bit of assistance in their training program. And Jason came to us. He said, Mom and Dad, so many people, so many of these men want to be in the seminary. He said, I'm not going to take one of those places. I've been taught God's word since I could walk and, and be able to hear and breathe. And he said, I've received Christian education for my whole life, and I want to give my place to somebody else so they can have this wonderful education. And so it has been an incredible delight. And then, Colleen, Jason has just been, for this past year, president of Toastmasters on the Inside. They call it Gavel Club. And they critique each other's speeches and encourage each other to communicate well. And here I do the Speak Up Conference, where I train Christians in writing and speaking skills. And I thought, he's just a chip off the old block. He's training these men in communication skills, only in a different place than I am. And that, that is isn't that exciting? so the Lord. Yes, because you have a, a, a master's in um, speech education, don't you? Uh, my master's is in communication yeah. arts, and my, my undergrad is in speech education. Okay, so he has someone there. I mean, he's covering the world pretty much between you and your son. <laughs> <laughs> but it came in a way that you never, ever, ever, oh. ever expected. Talk to those people who are in the middle. They don't see their purpose yet, but they have no clue where God is. I just want to say, don't give up on God. Sometimes we pray, and it seems like our prayers are not being answered. And I want you to know that after these almost 18 years of Jason's incarceration, I now realize that often God answers my prayers in a different way than I expected. Mm 
Instead of getting the, the answer to my prayer, which was, Lord, please release Jason while he's still young enough to be able to have a life and be able to serve you outside of prison walls, I am learning to pray the hard prayer. And it's it, it could make me weep right now. And that hard prayer for me is, Lord, I long for my son's release, but thy will be done. And Lord, if you can use him in a greater way on the inside, training and equipping many inmates who will get out because they don't have life sentences, and if you can use him to mentor men who will never get out, who need hope, God, thy will be done. And that to this day is the hardest prayer that I lift up. And I want to tell anybody who's out there feeling hopeless, realize that God's work is not limited by how we think it should be done. He may have a surprising miracle for you that appears in a very different way than you've envisioned a positive result. And I love what, what Eric Little, the Olympian, said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. Don't give up. Oh, that is so incredible. And I have to, I want to go circle back to the hymns that you were talking about and also to the support um, that you were received and to what you just talked about with, Lord, I'm going to surrender, surrender this. Because when Jonathan, who is disabled, so it's a different kind of prison, so to speak, yes. we would say, um, he ministers to me in ways that are shocking, having gone through being assaulted and being made fun of and bullied and kicked and and made fun of. He rides to school looking up hymns on mm. his phone. And so we sang, Come thou fount of every blessing, turn my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Well, that was written by Robert Robertson, September 27th, 1735. Isn't that incredible? That is the secret. That's where the strength is. I call it the upside down nature of the cross. Yes. You know, out of our deepest grief can come our greatest joy. It can, but that's a choice. And I wanted to touch on that because you talked about the choices that you had to make. Um, and there were four very specific choices that you had to make from the beginning. And you've obviously integrated them into every part of your life. Well, one of those choices we all have to make in the middle of impossible circumstances is to choose life instead mm -hmm. of a kind of emotional death. And I remember baskets of cards were coming to us after people began hearing about this. And, and I noticed that many of them were sympathy cards, the kind you get when somebody dies. And I remember throwing them up in the air saying, my son is not dead, he is alive. And then it hit me once again, someone else's son is dead. And people were having trouble finding lyrics that would work. And they don't <laughs> yeah, exactly they don't sell those a, at Hallmark. <laughs> yeah, they don't have a greeting card line for the parents of children who've been arrested for murders. <laughs> people were doing the best they could. And then I noticed that in, in that basket, I had a couple of shoebox greeting cards and they would say things like brain cells come and brain cells go, but fat cells live forever. <laughs> <laughs> just keep it covered with fat so it won't get scratched. And those were from what I call my funny friend. Yep. And my dear friend knew how desperately I would need the life-giving power of humor, like we talked about earlier, Colleen. Mm -hmm. And uh, God just brought me to that place of saying, Carol, choose life. And, and then scripture started coming to me, not scripture I was reading, because when you're in the middle of the crisis, often you're crying so hard you can't read the Bible, or your mind is so muddled, you'll read the same verse over and over again, and it doesn't make sense. So I encourage people to memorize scripture before the crisis so that can come to you in the middle of it. And John 10.10, 10, I, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly ministered to me so powerfully in the middle of that important choice to choose life. Wow. 
You also had to choose to get going every day. Um, some of the other choices were to face the reality of life rather than the illusion that mm-hmm. you had had. And you talked about expectations, how um, how so many times we are, our expectations of life are run into, how do they move past that? I think one of the things that we need to come to grips with is once we are in the middle of what I call a new kind of normal, which is the book that follows when I lay my Isaac down, we, we have a very important choice to make. Will we choose to just quit being seen in public, to curl up, and, and just to exit society and not be a part of what's going on? Or are, are we going to choose to say, no, my life will never be the same again, and it will be far different than what my grand illusion was of it, but that doesn't mean it has to be a bad life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to admit that when the holidays come, Mm-hmm. And when I see happy families getting together with their relatives around their beautiful tables, I'm a little jealous because mm-hmm. I'm going to be spending Christmas at the prison with my my son. I'm going to be eating my Christmas dinner out of a vending machine. And I, I have those feelings of what I wish life would have been like. But then I have to say, Carol, where's the blessing? And on one of those Christmas afternoons at the prison, I I remember going into the ladies' room, and I was in a stall, and I heard a woman come in. I couldn't see her. I could hear her. She was sobbing. She was hyperventilating. Uh, She was cussing. She said, I hate this place. I hate these people. I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. Now, the old me would have come out of that stall. I would have quoted my five best verses on suffering. I would have prayed over and said, you'll be fine. But the new broken me was weeping before I left the stall. And that day, I put my arms around a complete stranger, and I did not quote my Bible verses. I did not say my prayer. I just wept with a stranger. And in that moment, I know our hearts were melded together. And I finally spoke up. I said, I know this pain. We were both weeping. I said, my boy's here. I'm so sorry about what's happened to your family. And Colleen, I'm learning that the old me would have preached a little sermonette. The old me would have said a quick prayer and said, you'll be, you'll just be fine. But the new me weeps with those who weep. I'm not asking God anymore for instant answers. I'm asking him to refine me in the middle of the journey and use me to minister to people in small ways and give them hope. And then in time, sometimes he opens the door for me to speak out loud about him. But often that isn't on the day of the first encounter. And I'm, I'm a firstborn of six preacher's kids. I'm from the buttonhole and for Jesus generation. <laughs> if I see somebody with a problem, I'd like to take them by the shoulders and say, look, friend, you have a problem. Pray this prayer and get with the program. Be well. And I am learning that does not work ever. <laughs> And that I need to be Jesus before I talk to people about Jesus. Well, I'm laughing so very hard because my daughter, who struggled so much um, growing up, said, you know, Mom, it's when you shut your mouth that I started to listen. (laughs) And I said, had I known it was that easy, I would have shut up a long time ago. But it was that's so true. When we are quiet we then don't interfere with what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's right. And we, we don't listen. Yes, we don't have to quote a ton of verses and say a bunch of prayers. We can hear their soul, connect with them again, and walk with them through it. Yes. Um, Carol, before, oh, there's so many more things we could talk about, but I've got I've to start winding down. I have a question, though. Um, you quote Philip Yancey, who I just love Philip who said the kind of faith God values seems to develop best when everything fuzzes over, when God stays silent and the fog rolls in. Speaking to those who are having the fog roll in, or maybe it has settled, like the San Francisco fog settles into the city, um, and now that some of the fog is lifted, although it can return. Can you speak to that, speak through that veil that they can't see right now? 
Well, I think it's a little bit like uh, the little girl whose kitty cat was run over in the driveway. And her mother was trying to console her. And she said, honey, just remember, Tabby's in heaven now. And that little girl put her hands on her hips and she said, but mom, I just don't understand it. What on earth does God want with a dead cat anyway? And I just think we have to come to that place of saying, Lord, I don't get all of this, but I am going to purpose in my heart to be your representative, to be in love with you, to still put my hope and faith in a God who is good and is trustworthy. And Colleen, out of that depths of my pain, and I hope this will help those who are, are listening today, I began to listen to God in a new way. I would read a verse, I would read a, a passage or a chapter, and I wouldn't try to rush or try to make this like a, a speedway, how fast can I get through Genesis through Revelation? Uh, I, I would do just a verse or two at a time, and then I would try to listen to what God was speaking into my heart as a result of that scripture. And I began doing this on a very regular basis. And uh, I then began to realize this was helping me so much to verbalize on paper what I believed was his prayer over my life as a result of what I was learning through his word, that this whole past year, I've been writing a devotional called He Holds My Hand. And it's a page per day, 365 day devotional. And I, through this devotional, want to give people not only fresh hope for themselves based on scripture, but I want them to learn a new way to read and then respond to God's word. I want them to write out what do you what do you hear God saying to you specifically in the middle of your need today as a result of what he's teaching you through this truth. And I truly believe that practice will transform our thinking as we try to figure out how we can do something concrete and faith-filled in the middle of our messy lives. Yes, you chose instead of what I would say, looking out, you chose to look up and say, Lord, I don't get this, but you do. And you've started a foundation from that. You have ministered through your son behind doors that you would never get to. And I will also say I had the privilege of reading part of your book that's not out yet. I feel so special. You are one of the fortunate. <laughs> so excited. But I couldn't get through January without making a ton of notes. And so the one on interruptions where you said, learn to trust me by following my call. You have an agenda that seems right, and your natural inclination is to develop a strategy that seems practical, predictable, and timely. I so get that. <laughs> it's easier for you to trust me when everything makes sense and you can foresee a positive outcome. However, there are times when I will interrupt your carefully made plans and ask you to do something that makes no sense Always remember my great love for you and my desire to give you opportunities to minister to others along the way. Often the most important appointment in your day will come disguised as an unwanted disruption. Some people around you need to learn from you, and I will bring others into your life to help you find renewed hope and fresh faith. Interruptions are often divine surprises. I love the way you put that. That will bless your life in unexpected ways. Keep following my call and you will be in for the adventure of a lifetime. How perfect is that for every day of the world? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to keep that in mind every single day. That every interruption, the unwanted phone call, the person at your door is a possibility that God is going to surprise you with some new input, an opportunity to minister to someone else and to even be refreshed in the process of refreshing others. And it will be a part of his plan. And what's fun about it is that it's unexpected. Yes. And it isn't something that we've put on our to-do list for today. It isn't in our agenda, but it's responding to his agenda on each day of our lives. 
And that is transforming. That is transforming. Carol, thank you so much. Now, in the show notes, I'm going to put a place where people can write to Jason. Yes, he would love that. And is there any other need that perhaps we can support you in? Well, he would love to hear from you. Just remember, you can't put anything in the envelope except for up to 20 postage stamps. And that is a real help to him, and it can bless other men as well. You can't put more than 20, or your letter will be rejected. That's according to prison rules. Then if anyone is interested in helping with our ministry on the inside, they can go to speakupforhope.org, and you will see on that website all kinds of ministries we do. We fill boxes of hope for wives and moms of inmates. You can be part of the greeting card program where we send year old but brand new greeting cards to inmates so that they can send a real birthday card to their children, Christmas cards to their loved ones. And they can be a part of helping us uh, fill that prison library with great books and to help in the seminary program as well. So we welcome your support. Well, Carol, you have been an unbelievable support to each person, I'm sure, who watched this talk today or listened. And wherever you find yourself, please know that Carol understands, I understand, we want to reach into your life if you will allow us, and that will be an honor. Connect with Insight at insight.org. Connect with Carol through the various ministries that she's talked about, as well as what I'll have in the show notes. And just believe that God is with you even if the fog is heavy and the day is long because he's going to use you in a way you cannot imagine. Carol, thank you so very much. I so appreciate your time and your wisdom and your words. Thank you so much, Colleen. It has been an honor to speak with you today.